Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, hope you do. Go ahead and turn to the book of Jeremiah, somewhere near the middle of your Bible. We've been walking through the Old Testament together, started with Genesis. We've made our way all the way up to the major prophets. Last time we looked at the uh, book of Isaiah. So the next one in order is Jeremiah, at least as in order as it is in our uh, English text. Um, And so uh, this morning we're going to try to cover 52 chapters of Jeremiah. Last time uh, we were able to get through all 66 chapters of Isaiah, but actually, I think, I didn't actually go check the character count on this, but I think Jeremiah is actually longer than uh, Isaiah, um, but I, I, I could be wrong on that. It doesn't matter, we're going to still try to cover it. So, um, all that said, let me start by opening us up in prayer, and then we're going to dive in, and we're going to dive in quick and deep together. Let's pray. Father, this is an important time. It's an important time in the life of every one of us. It's an important time in the life of our church. And and that's this time that we set aside every week to come as a church around your word and hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that you will speak. I pray, God, that you would give help to me, the preacher. That, Lord, your word would go forth in a way that's clear, a way that's helpful. Uh, Lord, a way that gives um, a guidance to how to understand it. And then, Father, I pray for each listener that you would give them attentiveness. I know there's a lot of things to distract us. So, Father, I pray for attentive minds, that there would be a hearing and a receptivity to your word, that, Lord, it would go forth and that it would do as you promised and let it bear fruit. And, Father, we pray that your spirit would work through this time. Thank you for the life of Jeremiah. I'm amazed at this man's life. I'm amazed by his suffering. I'm amazed by his sacrifice. More than anything else, I'm amazed how much this man, your servant, trusted in your word over and over and over. And so, God, would you, by Christ, through your spirit, Lord, now give us a sampling of that faith, that trust in your word together. We ask these things to you, Father. We ask them through Jesus, who is our Savior, our Lord, our older brother. And we ask now that you would apply these in our midst by your Spirit. Amen. Well, um, the book of uh, Jeremiah is situated uh, around one of the most tragic events, honestly, in all of human history. Um, What goes on here could be considered, uh, in many ways, one of the saddest moments in all of human history. Uh, While it offers the narrative, and it does a good job, uh, it actually does more narrative than some of the other major prophets, while it offers a narrative of what and when, Jeremiah is very much focused on the why. And so we're going to focus most of our time, since Jeremiah focuses most of his time, On the why. Why did these things happen? And God willing, we'll be warned and encouraged by this very ancient text. But before we do that, uh, let me first give you a takeaway. So first title of the sermon is God Exalts. That's because Jeremiah means God Exalts. That's as far as I thought about that one. Uh, Takeaway. 
God alone can secure the obedience of our hearts to trust that Jesus is the fount of living water He promises to be. God alone can secure the obedience of our hearts to trust that Jesus is the fount of living water that He promises to be. I think you will see that and hopefully you'll walk away with that in Jeremiah. So... Here's a timeline. I think it's helpful because this is built around a story and some of us aren't as familiar as others about how things in the Old Testament lay out. So let me try to give you, a, take you from where you are to where, when this happened in about 45 seconds to a minute. So if you start in the year of our Lord, so if you start with Jesus uh, in the year, say, A.D. 0, the year of our Lord, if you go 2,000 years backwards, you would get Abraham. And if you go 2,000 years forward, you would get us. Okay? That's a helpful spot there. So 2,000 years backwards is Abraham. 2,000 years forward from Jesus is us. Alright, now we are actually, and the events we're going to be looking at are going to be situated between Abraham and Jesus. Halfway in between the time of Abraham and Jesus, it divides up nicely, you get a guy by the name of King David. So he sits halfway in between Abraham and Jesus. So there we go. Now, the events that we're going to be looking at actually occur between the time of King David and the time of Jesus. So we zoom in further there, between Jesus and and David, or David and Jesus, there are three major events that happen. First, in 922 BC, 922 BC, the nation of Israel, which was one unified nation, divides into two. So we get two nations, we get the north is Israel, and the south is Judah. Top ten tribes are Israel, and the uh, bottom southern two tribes are Judah. Everybody gather so far? Alright, you go forward just a little bit longer. It actually doesn't take long for this to happen, about a, a century and a half. In 722 B.C., Israel, the northern tribe, is led into captivity. And they're led into captivity by the Assyrians. So their their nation is wiped out by the Assyrians. Remember we talked about Tiglath-Pileser last time who came down. He wipes them out and he takes them to Assyria. Now, another century and a half later, the final event, so we're about halfway to Christ now at this point, uh, from the time of David to the time of Jesus, then in 586, and this is the event that Jeremiah is focusing in on, in 586 B.C., Judah, who is left, the small little nation of Judah, who is left, the two southern tribes at the bottom, they are then wiped out. And what matters a whole lot about this is Judah had the capital of Jerusalem and Jerusalem had the temple. So actually, what was the main event in 586? Yes, King Zedekiah goes, and we're going to see that. But more than anything else, the reason we mark the date is 586 because it actually started to happen about 30 years before this. The reason we mark the date is 586 is because that's when the temple is burned. Okay. The final chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 52, sums up these events of what Jeremiah is looking forward to talking. He's explaining this through Jeremiah. So we're actually going to jump to the very end, look at what happened, and that will help you understand why Jeremiah is warning all the way through. Warning. This is graphic. It's sad. Uh, it is part of human history. And it's recorded perfectly in the Word of God. Jeremiah chapter 52. Zedekiah 
was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hemutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. That's his brother who had gotten carried off already to Babylon. Verse 3. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. Notice, that's why all of this is going down. That's key. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month. Anybody wants to tell you that the Bible is just not really about facts, it's more about spiritual feelings and all that stuff? On the ninth year... In the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that sounds to me like a fact. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with him all his with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Jump to verse nine. Then they captured the king. And they brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he sent, and he, and he passed sentence on him. Verse 10. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah. That is, he gouged his eyes out. And bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon. And he put him in prison till the day of his death. Skip on down. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house. He burned them. God had made a promise. He made this promise to David. We looked at this very carefully as we walked through uh, the books of Samuel and Chronicles in 2 Kings. He had made a promise to David that David's line would have in it the forever king of the universe. It would come from David's genes. King Zedekiah represents that. And in turn, his sons represent that line. And now you have the king watching his sons, who are supposed to carry this line out, slaughtered before his own eyes. And this is likely the last thing Zedekiah ever saw because shortly after they go and gouge his eyes out. And you're left as the reader, wondering the question, well then how is God going to bring about the promise that a king will come? Not only was there that promise, but God had been so kind to give the people of God the temple of God. It was the closest thing to Eden that mankind had had since Eden. It represented the presence of God with His people in the land that He had promised. And now it was ransacked and burned. And you're left wondering, How will there ever be harmony between God and man? It leaves us, should leave us, with two major questions. Why would God let this happen? How would God let this 
happen? Well, before we consider why, let's look at how. Because Jeremiah is intent, or I should say God is intent through Jeremiah to explain the how. God is careful to explain that He does not merely let this happen. He owns it as that which He did on His own. That is, God said, I didn't just let Babylon conquer you. I sent Babylon to conquer you. I want you to see this in the text. God wants us to understand that His work is, that the work of Babylon is His work and Babylon is nothing more than a puppet in the hand of God. Jeremiah chapter 21 verse 3. Jeremiah said to them, thus you shall say to Zedekiah, I myself will fight against you. This is God speaking. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of great pestilence. Jeremiah 21, Jeremiah 34, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye. Isn't that an interesting way for God to put it? You will see him eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. This is what he tells him over and over. The response of Zedekiah over and over is, no, that won't happen. No, that won't happen. Jeremiah 27, verse 5. It is I, this is God, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm made the earth with man and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Listen to this. My servant. Who's his servant? The king of Babylon. He's telling the king of Judah, who's supposed to be God's servant, that he's going to use the king of a pagan nation, Babylon, to wipe out his servant. It's unbelievable judgment. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. In other words, I'm going to make sure all a man is lined up so that this happens. I'm even going to have the dogs and the horses be cooperative to wipe you out. Unreal. God is careful to explain that He sovereignly uses Babylon. He controls them. And yet, so interesting, He's also very careful to say, although I use them to do this judgment, they will be held responsible for the judgment that they bring. Very interesting. Let me show you this. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 9. For behold, I'm stirring up and bringing against... I love that some of you still have paper. I can hear it turning. I'm telling you, I want that in an app somewhere so bad that as you flip to the... scroll through, it just makes a sound like... That'd be good. But anyway, maybe I'll just bring a sprinkler. But anyway, all right. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations. (laughs) He's now bringing nations against who? 
Babylon, from the north country. And there they shall array themselves against her. From there they shall be taken. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. Do to her as she is done. Verse 18. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land as I punish the king of Assyria. Assyria came. They took, they judged my people Israel. I wiped them out with a people called Babylon. I raise up Babylon to judge my people Judah. I'll wipe them out. And we'll see that will be a nation called Persia. The Mede-Persian Empire. So God is careful to explain He did not just let this happen. He owns it. It's His judgment. Why? Why? We are given a very short but very precise answer as to why this happened in chapter 2. This is one of the most helpful passages in the whole book. And Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 13. God speaking to His people. Therefore, now this is before any of this took place, so keep that in mind. He's telling them. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. So in other words, he says, i got a problem. i got a problem with you. For across the coast of Cyprus, that would be go as far as west as they could imagine, or send to Kedar, that would be as far east as they could imagine, and examine with care. So look across the whole world. See if there's been such a thing. What thing? Here we go. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? <laughs> but my people have changed their glory for that which doesn't profit. Be appalled, O heavens. He's telling the heavens, look on at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Listen carefully. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Go as far as the east as you can, go as far as the west, and you tell me, Look at every nation who has a bunch of false gods. Are they giving up their false gods? No. But the people of the one true and living God are handing Him over for that which is a false god. In these verses, we get a definition of sin. The verse defines, these verses define sin in terms of that which nourishes. So let me explain. Judah. Like most pre-modern societies, if you're there, you got three options when it comes to potable water. Option number one, your best option is a spring or a river. It's flowing water. You get it. It's going to be clean, fresh, and good. Next option, not as good, but, but still okay. And that would be water that's under the ground that flows under the ground. You would get this by digging a well. Not nearly as good as fresh flowing water, but almost nobody gets the chance to live right by a stream of water. Then the last resort. It's your worst option. You dig a cistern. 
basically just a big hole in the ground. You cover the walls with mud to make sure that the water doesn't seep down into the earth. And then you wait for the rain to come and it falls down into there and it comes on up and that becomes your water to live on. Now you all know what happens when water sits. Does it get cleaner? No. It fills up with bacteria and disease. It's not a good source. God says His people have committed two evils. First, they've neglected Him, the fountain of living water. God is living water. Always fresh, always clean. That which gives life. But not only have they rejected Him, the fountain of living water, they have instead replaced Him with nasty cisterns. And catch this, they're broken. They don't even hold water. You got the picture? That's the definition of sin handed to us in Jeremiah 2. This is what it means when people, one, reject God as their source of nourishment for hope and joy and goodness, excitement and a future. And they commit the second evil. They consume things which cannot nourish the soul. A foot sin defined, it's to reject God as nourishment and life. It's to turn to anything aside from God for nourishment. That's the operative definition of sin in Jeremiah, but I want to go further and say that's the operative definition of sin in the Bible. Is that not exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3? Did they not have laid out before them all types of perfect nourishment for their lives and instead reject that nourishment and turn to that thing which cannot nourish and say, we'll eat from this? It's exactly what they did. This is where the Bible is masterful at diagnosing us. It diagnoses the human condition across this room. Every person here represents a thirsty soul. You can no longer go no longer without giving nourishment to your soul than you can go without giving nourishment to your body. In fact, I'm convinced, utterly convinced, that God gives us our physical bodies in the way He gives them to us to teach us things about our soul. In particular, I learned from my body that I cannot go long without food before I need more food. I believe fully that that is God's way of reminding me, so Tim, your soul cannot go without nourishment. It runs off of nourishment. So you say, well, Tim, actually, I can go days without eating. I mean, I actually could pull that off. Yeah, but you can only go days without eating because of the days, because of what you ate the days before you went without eating, right? In other words, you're still going off of nourishment. That's the only way your body works. Our souls need nourishment. Just like you cannot rely on a holiday meal to feed you all year long, though at times we eat enough calories to probably pull that off, so you cannot feed your soul a few times a year, truth be told, not even just a few times a week, and think that it's going to survive. So how does your soul eat? What is it to nourish your soul? Well... What happens? What does bo- the uh, food do for the body? It lets it move. 
That's what it does. It lets it have action. So I think if we can figure out what moves our souls, then we can figure out what nourishes our souls. According to Jeremiah, sin is when anything but God is used to nourish your soul. So let me serve in his example. I'll be example case number one here. Let me share some broken cisterns that I've seen in my past. Places that I've sought nourishment that were not God and found out to be broken. Relationships. Goals and ambitions. Financial security. Stuff. There's a big category. Stuff. There's a lot of stuff in there. Unfortunately, most of it's electronic. Lust. Entertainment. People's praise. Those are just a few. But notice, all of these, at least not all of these, are bad in and of themselves. So how does this work? Well, let's return to the analogy of how our bodies and food work. Is food good or bad for you? Well, the answer to that, of course, is yes. Right? Of course it's good for you. And yes, it can kill you. Right? You can eat yourself to death. At the same time, try not eating and you'll also meet death, right? So also, there are things that our souls nourish on that can be used for good or they can be used for bad. Relationships are a wonderful gift from God. They can be great from your soul and they can ruin you. Sex, a wonderful gift of God, can be really good for your soul. It can destroy you. Money, it can be a great Thing for your soul. It can also put you to death. Praise of people. It can be a really encouraging thing for your soul. And it can also cost you your life. So how do we nourish our souls in the right way? Listen, I am convinced that the only way you can figure this out is to immerse yourself in the Word of God. Jesus says this, Man does not live off of bread alone, oh, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How many of those words? Every word. Even Jeremiah. And there's only one place for you to rightly hear every word of God. It is not in dreams. It's not in visions. It's not in long walks. It's certainly not from TV preachers. It is in the Scriptures. This is why we are passionate as a pastoral team about having the Word of God taught clearly, regularly, and drive all that we do here. We think the most helpful thing we can do for you is help you to be immersed in the Scriptures. And this is also where living in community is a huge help. You know, I actually know a pretty good amount about nutrition. I didn't say I followed it all the time. Um, but I, I actually know a decent amount. And you say, well, how? My wife is a dietitian. Um, she does the grocery shopping and she does the cooking. Judge me later, it's just the way it is. So she has taught me over the years how I should eat. Unfortunately, she's not responsible for all my meals. Um, I have found some broken cisterns. Anyway, 
But I have watched her for now 15 years model some healthy nutritional habits. Uh, I've learned how I should eat. And how has that happened? Well, it's happened by watching it, by being around it, seeing it. I think this is why church is so important. I think you, you have to be around people who are immersing themselves in the Scripture, who are trying to figure out how is it that I appropriate people's praise? How is it that I appropriate my finances? What should I think about sex and what should I not think about sex? How is it that I deal with loving a child in a way that's right and good and not making them become an idol? I think this is where being around mature believers is an incredible thing. You cannot just attend. You've got to be immersed in the church. You have to be able to closely examine your life with other believers who are immersed in God's Word. Okay. So how big of a problem is this? This whole trading God for one thing or the other. I mean, are we talking small yield sign or are we talking nuclear? Mm. We are literally talking much more than nuclear. And I do use the word literally there and understand why. This is a huge deal. Jeremiah lets us know that. Let me show you a couple places where I believe this is seen. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. They cannot listen. Wow. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I'm full of the wrath of the Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. Were they ashamed when they committed ab- uh, abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. Thus says the Lord. Stand by the roads and look. And ask for their ancient past where the good ways is and walk in it and find the rest and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set a watchman over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. Talking about Jeremiah there. And they said, we don't, we won't pay attention. Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 23. But this command I give you. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. They did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Verse 26, they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all the words to them, but they will not listen to you. Man, you're talking about that for an ordination message. (laughs) Here's what you can do, Jeremiah. You're going to go tell them, and they're not going to listen. You shall call to them. They will not answer you. God has warned His people over and over concerning the enormity of the problem, and they have stubbornly disobeyed. I believe there are four ways that we must be warned from Judah's fall. Four ways we should be warned. First, Let's notice that it's very possible to reach a point where we no longer listen to the warnings of God. 
It's very possible for us to get to the point where we stop hearing the warnings of God. You see this in a couple of places. First of all, he, he, we just saw there in the passages we read, they lost the ability to even blush, to even be embarrassed by their sin. It just They weren't embarrassed by it anymore. It became normal to them. Then we see Jeremiah tell them, God tells Jeremiah, you're going to go tell them? But what? They're not going to hear you. It's just like a person standing on a railroad track yelling and screaming, train coming, train coming, train coming, and they will not listen. Across the Scriptures, we get this warning and hear this. The warning is, there can come a point when you will no longer hear God's call to repent. It can happen. And so the Scripture is clear that the operative time to repent is always now. If you're still hearing the voice of God saying to you, repent, then praise God, it's not too late, but you better repent. Second, warning. Our hearts are a horrible guide to truth. They are a horrible guide to truth. Jeremiah chapter 17 says this. Man, this... I would not put a bumper sticker uh, with a verse on it on the back of my car. Um, there's a lot of reasons, uh, but it would up the value of the car. But... If I, if I was going to, I think I might pick this one. This would be, might actually be helpful, um, to, I, I actually don't think it would be, but anyway, here you go. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 13. And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law and set before that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts. This is so needed, especially my generation. Every person out there who's just following your own heart, be warned. It's a horrible guy. Jeremiah diagnoses our hearts as first and foremost. Listen to it. It's not like he meant his words here. First and foremost, above all things, it lies. It's deceitful. And when it's not just deceitful, it's desperately sick. So many folks are out there following their own hearts. And the response to the Scriptures is, I know exactly where it's going to lead you. It will destroy you. We need to take warning. These serious, these warnings seriously. We can lead ourselves to destruction. But not only can we lead ourselves to destruction, it gets worse. Those who claim to speak on behalf of God can lead us to destruction. So be warned. Third, those who often speak on behalf of God, do not represent Him accurately. All across the book of Jeremiah, 
are warnings of false teachers. And the false teachers all had the same message. I want you to hear the message of false teaching. When you hear false teaching, I think everybody thinks of like, go meet me up, drink this Kool-Aid, and we'll, we'll land on the mountain uh, at 9 a.m. on you know January 1st of next year. Like it's going to be that explicit, right? I want you to hear what the false teaching of Jeremiah sounded like. You tell me if this sounds anything like false teaching today. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10. I mean, this is all over the book. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Do you understand what the message of false teaching is? It tells people there's peace when there is no peace. It tells people you're right with God even when you're not right with God. It is dangerous. Jeremiah chapter 14, 13 through 16. Then I said, Our Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. What do the prophets say? The sword's not coming. You're going to have peace. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I didn't send them, nor did I command them to speak. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and deceit of their own minds. Therefore, says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them. Them, their wives, their sons, their daughters, I will pour out evil against them. I want you to know I'm not just picking this across the book. As you read this from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 52, it is over and over. There's one more sample. Jeremiah 23. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It will be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster is going to come upon you. So do you understand what Jeremiah was saying was the, what folks believed in their own heart that in his day? It was this. God is not going to judge sin. That's what people believe sitting in the pews. And the false teachers got up and said what? You're right. God isn't going to judge sin. Folks, this is huge. Our land. And it's not just Ireland. It has gotten really bad in places like South America. It's getting bad in some places in Africa and in Southeast Asia like India. There are prophets who are preying on the lives of people by telling them that God really doesn't care about their sin. And God is very very ready to judge both the prophets and those who listen to it. 
And so I say, if you go to a church and you hear very little about sin from the pulpit, I would get out quick. Because I can promise you this, they are not teaching the Word of God. You read any section, any section. We have a daily reading list. We divide the Scriptures up in 365 bits. You will not, not one day of the year, find a time when you want to hear it talk about sin. It's full of it. And preachers who tell people that God doesn't care, they will be judged. Fourth, we should notice that we are apt to create our own reasons why God will not judge us. One of the lies of the false prophets was that God would not be punishing Judah simply because they actually had the temple. So they watched Israel go. I mean, they're right above them. That's their sisters. They watched the sister nation go. And the prophets in their land, the false prophets, said, you know what? They got wiped out, but you guys have the temple. They didn't have the temple. As long as the temple's here, God's promised. He's not going to let that happen. Lie, lie, lie. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15. I want you to see. I'm not making it up. Verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in my house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called in my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jesus will use that line. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. I'll do to you what I did to Israel. This is the lie that they were using to make themselves feel as if they were okay. But realize, every person who believes in God, hear this carefully, every person who believes in God and continues in sin always has a reason for why they think God will not judge them. Let me say it again. Every single person who believes in God and continues in sin, every one of them has a reason why they think God will not judge them. For the people of Israel, the fact that the temple was in their city. For many people in our land, it was a decision they made at VBS or at some youth camp. It was a baptism service or a catechism. Whatever it is, friends, you're fooling yourself. If you think you're any safer than the folks in Judah who were standing at the temple saying, we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple, as it burned, many of the Israelites believed that since they had followed the religious rites that God had given them, like being circumcised, they were free to live in rebellion to God's ways. But there's a difference between circumcision of the flesh and circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah 9, 25-26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all of those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Let me say that again. I will punish those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. This is huge for Old Testament theology. It's huge for understanding the Bible. There is a difference between being circumcised of God as a Jew and being merely circumcised in the flesh. 
There's, it's not drawn in the New Testament. It's drawn in the Old Testament. There's a distinction. So just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're of God. Listen to what he says there. He says, for all, and he gives, lists off a bunch of nations who they're acting like. And he said, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel, Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. So there are those who are merely circumcised, but their lives look just like all the rest of the uncircumcised nations. Similarly, similarly today, there are thousands upon thousands whose names line up on church rolls, who have merely made a decision, who have merely prayed a prayer, who have merely walked an aisle, who have merely been baptized, who have merely been catechized, yet their lives look no different than the rest of the world. And they're fooling themselves as they think they're safe from God's judgment. Okay. Now, if you feel like, oh my goodness, we're like 97% through with the message and all I've heard is judgment, then I've done a good job of giving you the book of Jeremiah. Alright? As you go read it, you tell me if you don't feel it's 97% judgment. It's, you might come back and be like, no, actually, I think it's about 99. But yet, in the midst of all of this, there are some passages, probably one of the most Hopeful passages of all the Old Testament is found in Jeremiah. Read with me, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This will be quoted in full in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. You all remember that. It feels like just yesterday we were preaching on that. And they're standing there. If you obey, there'll be blessings. If you curse, I mean, if you disobey, there'll be you'll be cursed. He's saying, I'm going to give you a different covenant than that. Wow. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them... All the way to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God is promising a new covenant that is different than the old covenant. The amazing hope is that it can triumph over our deceptive hearts. How? Well, it's because He's actually going to take His law and write it where? On our hearts. He's going to take His law and actually put it within us. So, etched on our deceitful hearts will be the very law of God. There's coming a day when your heart will not lead you astray. There's coming a day in the coming kingdom when your heart will lead you to drink from the fountain of God every time. His children will not be led astray by false teachers 
Why? Because they're going to have one and only one teacher. God Himself. And they will not create reasons as to why God won't judge them. Why? Because listen to what it says. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. How? How does this happen? He will do all of this through His Son, Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus isn't until the New Testament. Don't tell the Old Testament that. It doesn't know. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. (laughs) And he shall reign as king, and he'll deal wisely. He'll execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which He shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God saves us in and through His promised Messiah, Jesus. He becomes our righteousness. It's through His death and in His life that we actually will get new hearts. That we actually can have hope. Every one of us arrived here this morning, whether we recognize it or not, with a thirsty soul. Jesus claims to be a source, the only source, whereby all who drink of Him, His exact words, will never thirst again. He is the promised hope, the promised living water of God. So let us not trust in mere circumcision. Let us not trust in our baptisms, our experiences, our decisions. Let us not trust in our names on rolls. But let us trust squarely in Jesus Christ as our King. And everyone who follows Him as King will, no pun intended, follow Him as King. Let's pray.